another day the Lord has given to us to serve him, a Lord's Day, which is a special day each week. And after uh, being here this week, I, I'm feeling blessed, I'm feeling full, I'm feeling um, very blessed to be in the presence, again, of God's people. I've learned to know a number of you this week a little better, and I'm very blessed in that. You've blessed us in many ways, your hospitality, your, your kindness to us, and uh, we're glad we can meet again this morning in this way, in God's house. It had been a trying time for Abraham. Warring factions in the surrounding community, surrounding area were wreaking havoc. Four kings against five until finally the four kings overcame the five kings in the Dead Sea Valley there. And all of this may not have affected Abraham much, except that one of the conquered kings was the king of Sodom where nephew Lot lived. And Lot and his family were taken captive. His goods were spoiled. And when Abraham received the news, he took 318 trained men of his household and set off after the victors and after their spoil. Well, Abraham overtook them by night and uh, brought back Lot and the women and the other people along with their possessions. And upon his return, he met Melchizedek. And he paid Melchizedek a tenth of all of his possessions. So yes, God had blessed Abraham, but life was not without his trials and its difficulties. And finding that, following that account, we come to Genesis chapter 15. I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15, where we plan to spend most of our time this morning. The account of the kings and Abraham that I just recounted was chapter 14. We come to chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, beginning with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He took, them, took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. 
And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark, behold a smoking furnace, and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Here in verse 1 we read that after these things, that is, after his victory over the Canaanite kings, the word of the Lord came to Abram here in a vision. God sought him out and said, Fear not, Abraham. Sorry, Abram at this point. What would Abram have to fear? He had just overcome the Canaanite kings, the Canaanite victors. God was on his side. Verse 1 here, God tells Abram, I'm thy shield and I'm thy exceeding great reward. What more could a man ask? But yes, as with many of us, there were other problems, other difficulties on his mind, Abram's mind. Verse 2, yes, Abram told God, I know that you promised me that you would bless me, that you would make my name great. That's in verse 2, make me a great nation, but Lord, I don't have any children. And without any child, my servant Eliezer from Damascus here is my heir. Verse 4, God told him, Eliezer will not be your heir. A child from your own body will be your heir. Verse 5, he said, come on outside and take a look at the vast heavens. Count the stars, Abram. So Abraham starts counting, one, two, three. Keep going, 400, 500, 600. How many do you see? Well, it's a number too large to count. When you have counted them all, God says your descendants will match that number. And later, God will use the illustration of the sand of the sea to describe the number of Abraham's descendants. Innumerable number. On verse 6, then we have this profound statement. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him for righteousness. We usually define righteousness as right living or right doing. But here, God counted Abram righteous because of his belief. No, Abram didn't understand everything that was going to happen, but he believed God. And God counted that genuine belief as righteousness on Abram's behalf. Verse 7, well, the Lord identifies himself as the one who led Abram out of the earth of the Chaldees as the one who would give him this land where he was standing as an inheritance. Abram himself would not inherit all this land, but his descendants would. And in verse 8, Abram asked for a sign. He says, how can I know that I will inherit it? Now, in our humanness, we might wonder, well, with a question like that, did Abraham really believe God? But certainly God knows the difference between unbelief on Abraham's part or a simple request for more information and confidence. Abraham believed God, but he still had this question. And to answer Abram's question, 
God did something at this point that we would probably consider strange. But it was not at all strange to the Old Testament people. This was a ritual with which they would have been familiar. Verse 9, God said, take a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old nanny goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That's all that he told Abram to do. But notice what Abram did. He brought all those animals to the Lord, or likely he had his servant do it, and he slaughtered the heifer, cutting it in two pieces. He did the same with the female goat. He did the same with the ram. These animals were divided in two, and the two halves were laid opposite each other, one on the right, one on the left. Half a heifer on the left, half on the right. Half a goat on the left, half of an anti-goat on the right. Half of a ram on the left, half of a goat on the right. Abraham knew exactly what to do because he knew how a covenant was drawn up. The expected ritual was as follows. The two parties, the greater party, who was the one who established the terms of the covenant, and then the lesser party who accepted the terms of the covenant. And these two parties would walk between the halves through the blood as a way of saying, may what was done to these animals be done to me if I do not keep my part of the covenant. It was a vow that the one who failed to keep the covenant would pay for it with his life, with his blood. We have a clear biblical example of this type of ritual and vivid language in Jeremiah chapter 34. Hold your finger here, Genesis 15, we'll be coming back to this. But turn to Jeremiah chapter 34. Jeremiah 34, I'd like to begin with verse 18. Jeremiah 34 beginning with verse 18. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me, when they, passed, when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof, the princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf, I will even give them into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of them that seek their life. And their dead bodies shall be for meat under the fowls of the heaven and to the beasts of the earth. Do we realize what's being said here? Here in Jeremiah, what had Israel done to deserve this judgment? Well, if we go back and look at the verses just prior to this, verse 16 and 17... Israel had broken a stipulation of the covenant regarding the treatment of slaves. They were guilty of violating the covenant. And because of the oath that they took part of, of the solemn covenant ceremony, God was holding them accountable. And they would give their lives for breaking their part, their half of the covenant. I could not independently confirm this, but historian Ray Vanderlaan describes a blood path ritual that was supposedly common for arranging marriages in some Middle Eastern desert communities. 
He describes the lesser party, the bride's father providing the animal and cutting it in half just as Abraham did in Genesis 15. The greater party, the groom's father, walked first between the halves of the calf, stomping barefoot through the blood, promising that his son would be an honorable husband. And if he's not, he expects to be treated just like that slain animal. The young woman's father then performs the same motions, walking through the blood trail, promising that his daughter is a virgin and will make a proper wife. And if she doesn't, my part of the covenant is broken. You may do this to me as he stomps through the blood between the halves of the animals. This ritual is therefore a commitment that if I break this covenant, I will expect to pay for it with my life. Well, let's go back to Genesis 15. Verse 11, the fowls, and I think of turkey buzzards here or some kind of scavengers, came down upon the carcasses that Abraham had laid out there. The covenant had not yet been ratified, and so Abram chased them away, chased away the scavengers, the birds. But as the sun sank in the west, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and he was troubled by many thoughts. And verse 12 says that a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Now, Abram had just overcome a, a number of Canaanite kings to free Lot, but what if they would return to do him harm? And now here he is in the middle of a blood path ceremony with Almighty God. He may have been unsure what the terms of the covenant were going to be. What's God going to require of me? Maybe God would demand that Abraham would walk before me and be ye blameless, as he had commanded in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. Wouldn't that frighten any of us? If that's my part of the covenant, to walk before God blameless. And so as the sun sets and as Abram is looking at this trail of blood and he is pondering, will he be able to keep his end of the bargain? Will he be able to keep his part of the covenant that's about to take place? And as Abram looks on this situation in a state of trance, God appears in the darkness and tells Abram some of the future. Verse 13, he says, Abram, your descendants will be a stranger in a land that's not theirs for 400 years. And of course, at this point in time, Abram didn't even have any descendants. But God continues, I will judge that nation that your descendants will serve, and your seed shall come out of that land with great material goods. Verse 15, he says, Abram, you'll live to a ripe old age and you will die in peace. Verse 16, but then in the fourth generation, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-greats, your descendants will come here again, come to this place where you are. That is, they will leave Egypt and come here to Canaan, right here, Abram, where you are. And the reason why they cannot possess the land of promise until then is because the iniquity of the Amorites will not yet be full. The term Amorites refers to the peoples that lived in the land of Canaan. Israel cannot possess this land until the Amorites be pushed out and overcome. But they're not yet ripe. The Amorites, the Canaanites, are not yet ripe for ruin. God in his righteousness has determined that they will not be cut off 
until they've persisted in sin for a while and arrived at a place of such wickedness that anyone who sees their judgment will know that it's because of their sin. Until that time comes, the descendants of Abram will not be able to inherit this land. They will instead go to Egypt. Ponder that for a moment. Does God have an arch, overarching plan for history? For the Middle East, for Iraq, for Syria, for America? Don't doubt that for a moment. Do twin tower airplane targets and synagogue built bombings and Islamic State caliphates and politically polarized governments, do these things surprise God? Not in the least. He has a plan and history will be fulfilled according to his plan. At what point will God say to the United States of America, enough. We don't know when that time will be. But we do know that God's plan for America and for the nations and for the world will be fulfilled. Well, remember the setting here. The animals, the blood, Abram pondering this and just wondering what's going to happen. And that's when the Lord does a marvelous thing. He takes the responsibilities and the burden of fulfilling the covenant, both sides of the covenant, the greater and the lesser. He takes the responsibility for fulfilling that, fulfilling that on himself. Verse 17, it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. I believe verse 17 here is the key verse of this chapter. As the sun disappeared over the horizon, it was time to ratify the covenant. And it was then that the Lord does something that Abraham probably was not expecting. At this point in the ceremony in which the two parties would step into the blood, the blood path between the halves of the animals and vow to be treated like the slain animals laying there if either of them were to violate the terms, at that point, God intervenes. And he steps in both figuratively and literally, a smoking oven and a burning torch, two representations of God, passes between those pieces. First, the furnace gave off smoke. Secondly, the burning lamp gave off light. And Abram knew that both of those parties were God, representing the greater and the lesser of this covenant. The greater party always walked through the blood first, and the smoke represents the presence of the Lord. When God came to Mount Sinai, it was covered in smoke in Exodus 19.18. Each time God came to the tabernacle or the temple, it filled with smoke, as in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 4. The lesser party walked through the trail second, and fire also represents God. From the burning bush to the pillar of fire that God used to guide his people in the desert, fire represents God. Hebrews 12, 29 declares that our God is a consuming fire. 
And so the picture here was clear. The Lord loves Abraham so much that he promises to give him a son and descendants and land and eventually the Messiah to the whole world. And he symbolically tramples barefoot through the blood to give Abram assurance and confidence that he can trust the word of the Lord. God doesn't rebuke or chastise Abram for questioning him or asking for a sign. He just gives Abram the sign that he needs in the form of a common yet solemn and serious ritual, a ratified covenant that God would do what he said. And we see the terms of the covenant here in verses 18 through 21. Picking up with verse 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cabmanites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephrams, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The covenant specifically relates to Abram. Abram would have a son, and his seed would possess all of this land. The boundaries of the land were given, but other promises to Abram regarding his son are also included, and there are many. Whenever God left, whenever Abraham left Ur, God promised in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, that he would make of Abram a great nation. That there were, that he would bless him and make his name great. In Genesis chapter 17, God noted that the covenant between God and Abram and his seed would be an everlasting covenant. That's chapter 17 and verse 7. And the land would be given to Abram's seed for an everlasting possession. That's chapter 17, verse 8. <clears throat> in chapter 18, Abram was told that all the nations of the earth would be blessed because of him. We recognize that these promises to Abram and to his seed, and yet the promise of being a blessing to all the families of the earth was a reference to the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind, our Savior, and he would come through the line of Abraham. Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where he points out there in Galatians chapter 3, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We as Gentiles are blessed because of the descendants of Abraham and because of the covenant that God gave to him. The direct covenant was with Abram and his seed or his descendants. And yet the blessings of this covenant extend to us today as the spiritual descendants of Abraham. It may be easy to miss the important implication of this given here in Genesis 15. What did God do here in Genesis 15? To ratify the covenant, the Lord himself passed between the pieces. He actually walks in for Abraham and takes Abraham's place. And by doing this, God was telling Abram, Abram, if you sin, if you're not perfect... If your descendants are not blameless, 
if you break this covenant in any way, you may do to me what was done to these animals. Think of it. God knew Abram's descendants would fail. He knew that Abram's descendants, including you and us here this morning, you and me here this morning, would sin. And so at this point in time, God sentenced himself, that is his son, the Lord Jesus, to die in Abraham's place, and in your place, and in my place. The promise from the Lord was that if God fails, which of course is impossible for God to fail, but if God fails, God would pay for that sin. But he also stated by his actions that if Abram or his descendants should sin, and of course that was a given because we are a sinful man, God would pay the price of that violation of the covenant. God himself, either way, it's on God. We know that Jesus did pay the price for Abram and his descendants. Jesus gave his life. He was slain just as those animals were slain because Abram failed and because you and I have come short of God's will and we have sinned. The ratification ceremony in Genesis 15 and the significance of God passing between the pieces adds significantly significantly to our understanding of what Jesus did for me. What God has promised, he will certainly perform. And as we review history from Abram until the day Jesus actually died on the cross, God's hand was guiding the whole way. God knew that we could not hold up our side of the bargain. And still God initiated the relationship with us as sinful human beings. We have no goodness of ourselves to bring to the table. And yet he was willing to prove his devotion to us by offering his own life to pay for the sins of man. Abram made no promises. God did it all. The plan of salvation came from the generous heart of God. God's promise to Abram was unconditional. The fulfillment of the covenant didn't depend on Abram or on his seed. And neither can we perfectly keep the terms of our covenant with God. But we thank God that he has made provisions, that he was willing to stand in for us and take our place when we violated the terms of the covenant by sinning. If we consider that Jesus paid the price for our salvation, we might expect that everyone would receive the free gift and be saved. And yet, we know that that's not the case. But why? There are perhaps two main reasons why that people give for rejecting this free gift of salvation that Christ has provided for us. The first would be the notion that we need to do something in order to be saved. That's deeply ingrained in the human nature. You know, we think we can do it on our own. Occasionally, you'll find an individual who is so opposed to receiving something from someone that he won't, he simply refuses to take it unless you accept some type of payment from him in return. You know, such a person needs to realize that, yes, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
but in order to allow that other person to receive his blessing, I, need, I sometimes need to be willing to receive so that he can be blessed. Refusal can be a symptom of pride. To say that I don't need to receive anything from anyone implies that I'm totally self-sufficient, which of course none of us totally are. This can extend to receiving salvation as a free gift as well. Some consider the way of salvation through Jesus to be embarrassing. Now, when the Duchess of Buckingham was invited to hear George Whitfield preach, she responded this way. She said, it's monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. It's highly offensive and insulting. And she refused to go and hear him preach because she was above that. Ultimately, unfortunately, she's not alone in her self-righteousness. An aged Muslim and influential Egyptian spoke of his faith this way. He said, all my life, I've obeyed the Quran. I've worshipped Allah faithfully. If after death I find that there's no, there's no paradise as the Quran promises, I shall feel that I have been miserably cheated. Islam is a religion of works. You can earn, you must earn your salvation. So is every other religion that you might name. Any man or woman who proposes to bargain to God for a place in his eternal heaven is going to be greatly disappointed. There's no way that we can earn our salvation. Unfortunately, many profession Christians will meet the same fate. We read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have cast out devils, thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Good works must be the fruit of our simple faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they're all in vain. What a terrible fate for those who expect to earn their way into heaven. But there's another reason that many reject the free gift of salvation. Some have been deceived into thinking that they can earn their way there. Others reject the gift because of the cost of this gift is more than they are willing to pay. The high cost of a free gift sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But many scriptures would bear this out. Of course, we know that the cost was high for our Savior, it cost him his life. It cost him that pain and that suffering. But there's also a high cost for the one who takes the name of the Lord Jesus. Not in terms of money. The thief on the cross was saved without a penny to his name. But just as the cost to Jesus was extremely high, just those, so those who accept the gift must be willing to pay the price. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I'd like to begin reading with verse 25. Luke 14, verse 25. And there went great multitudes unto him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, 
and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but he wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Count the cost, Jesus warned. Be sure that you intend to finish. And he uses here the illustration of a man building a tower. A partially built tower is useless. It's an object of scorn and mocking. The wise builder will count the cost and make sure that he can complete it. Verse 33, the one not willing to forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's a high price. The lordship of Jesus over self, over life, over possessions must be acknowledged if we are to know him as Savior. Casting ourselves upon the rock of our salvation includes a painful breaking of self. It requires giving up much of what the carnal man holds dear. The appeal to salvation is often stated, just accept Christ and be saved. But receiving Jesus as Savior is not a matter of just accepting Him and continuing to live as you always have. A person who has not counted the cost and has not surrendered his possessions, his life, even his all, to Jesus will soon be withered and dead as the seed of the parable of the sower which landed on shallow ground and it took root but there was no depth there and it soon died. And James agrees with Paul that salvation comes by grace through faith but James defines the kind of faith that saves. That is, it's a faith that works, a living faith. A one-time decision that's seldom thought of afterwards is not saving faith. But rather, it's a dead, lifeless faith, James explains. A saving faith is evident in the life of the believer by the changes that it makes in the life. Consider again the thief on the cross. This, this man was gloriously saved there on the cross. But sometimes a person wants to be saved just like the dying thief. That is, they mean that they want to be saved without daily cross bearing or without walking in obedience to the Lord's commands. Well, such a person has been misled. Only a dying man can be saved just like the dying thief. This doesn't mean that God has different plans of salvation for different men, but it does mean that at whatever point in life one comes to Christ for salvation, the whole life from that point forward is changed by necessity, involved in a surrender to the Lord Jesus. Now we thank the Lord that the dying thief was just as saved and will have the same dwelling in heaven 
as the rest of us. This allows us to proclaim the gospel freely that whosoever will, whosoever will come, may come and be saved. But if the thief had met Jesus in the midst of his life, instead of at the gates of death, the demands of Jesus would have followed him as well, the remainder of his life. You know, we don't expect a new believer to suddenly be a mature Christian man or woman. But the commitment of surrendering to Jesus will cause a new believer to enter into a lifelong process of growing in the Lord. We who have trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior many years, we still don't have a perfect understanding. We still need to grow, and we frequently even stumble and fall. We exhibit spiritual immaturity in many ways, but if we're truly saved, our heart will be open to Jesus, and the basic orientation of our life will be toward Him. However imperfectly it may be, we will acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus over our heart, over our life, and it will be evident in our life as we live day by day. It costs to follow Jesus. The emblem of our faith is the cross. Many Christians identify with Jesus' death, and that's appropriate. But there was also a cross for Peter. And there's a cross for Paul. There was a cross for James. And there's one for everyone who will follow Jesus. There's a cross for you and a cross for me. Luke 9, 23. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's costly to follow Jesus. But the cost of following self and Satan is even higher. One leads to eternal life. The other leads to eternal damnation. Why would anyone who has heard the gospel message refuse to receive it? It might be too easy. Some might say, I'll earn my salvation on my terms, with my works. Or it might be too difficult, too costly, the cost is too high. I'm not willing to pay all of that. I'm not willing to surrender my will and my life to Jesus. Jesus says, count the cost. From a financial standpoint, it's free. From the perspective of your life, it'll cost you your all because you must turn your life over to the Lord Jesus. But be assured, Jesus is a loving taskmaster. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Each one of us need to make that choice. It's not forced on us, but not making that choice for Jesus is to make a choice to serve Satan and self. Have you counted, or will you count, the cost of following Jesus this morning? The gift is free. The cost is high. He committed himself way back there in Genesis 15, there with Abram, to give his life for you. He followed through with that. He walked this earth. He gave his life. He suffered and took our place. If God is speaking to you, don't turn him away. We want to give you the opportunity this morning to publicly commit yourself to live for him. So we will be looking for a song of invitation, but first, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for paying the price 
for our salvation. Thank you for salvation from everyone, from Adam until you return, for those who receive you as their Lord and Savior. Dear Lord, you promised as much to Abraham, and you died in our place. You want relationship with us. You love us. You gave your life for us, but the choice is ours, and we need to choose to give our life to you and walk in your way. Perhaps someone here this morning who has not availed themselves of the salvation that you offer. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage, give them the strength to fully commit their life to you. If God is speaking and you would like to commit yourself to Jesus, I want to ask you to come forward as we sing an invitation hymn. I or one of the ministers here this morning would be delighted to pray with you and help you start on the new road. Or perhaps the Lord is speaking to you about your need to recommit your life to Him. Coming forward isn't easy, but consider what Jesus did for you. He died for you. Will you live for Him? Won't you come so that we can pray with you this morning? Stand or come forward this morning to take a stand for Jesus and begin committing your life to him. What number shall we sing? Christian hymnal number 303. And if the Lord is speaking to your heart this morning, won't you come forward to make a commitment of your life to him? sing just one more verse. If God's speaking to you, he doesn't say you have to do this or that and come. He says, come just as you are. Certainly, it will make a difference in your life. It is a commitment. It will change. There will be changes required. But he says, come. I died for you. We'll sing one more verse. If the Lord is speaking to you this morning, won't you come?
Thank you for your attention this morning. Let's never forget what Christ has done for us. This evening, Lord willing, I want to think about the subject, the wages of sin with regard to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's been a privilege to be with you this morning. May the Lord bless you as you continue to serve him. I'll turn the service over to you. Thank you, Ed, for that clear uh, gospel message this morning. As was mentioned, there is a fellowship meal prepared in the basement, and it would be our honor to have you all join us for that. Uh, a few announcements. Uh, children, we ask that you please do not go down until everything is prepared. And as a token of our appreciation, Ed and Jane, Riley and Katharina and the family, if you guys would mind going first, we'd be honored. So we've, uh, at this time, I'll pray for the meal, so can we all stand? <clears throat> Father God, for all that you've done, we want to say thank you. And thank you for today, for beautiful weather, for everyone being here, for the hard work of the many hands that have went into preparing the meal for us. And Father, we thank you for their hard work. Thank you for the food. And would you bless it to our bodies. Bless our time of fellowship. May it be a sweet smelling savor to you as you sit upon your throne, high and exalted. Dismiss us with your peace, with your protection, and bring us back here safely again tonight. We ask this all in your name. Amen. So once it is ready, I will announce, and then we'll go forward from there. So you guys can enjoy fellowship here till then.